to the final episode of the complete Shishtaf Kishlovsky. I'm Matt Gasteyer, and I am here with my co-host Travis Trudell. How are you today, Travis? I'm doing well. I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy to come to a uh, come to an end to this journey. It was a, uh, it was a very fruitful one. So I'm happy to uh, finally. Uh, talk about all of our feelings get all of our feelings out on the table yes it's been a while since we started uh this season um we we kind of designed these to be uh out of time to a certain degree and make it so that people can go back to the season when they're ready to do a watch through of the director's movies and hopefully we can provide some things to think about and bounce ideas off of um as people watch through the movies but a lot's going on in the world and the the world is currently on fire as we end this and a lot has changed in in the um in the couple of years almost that we've uh that we've been doing this season um i think uh i think shishtaf would have had a lot to say about it oh for sure I think I think he thrives off of conflict and being able to uh, find the humanity within it. And I think having him as an anchor point during all this craziness has been very helpful, at least uh, for me, especially. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. We'll get into kind of some of the individual things, but um, I think before we, we do, I was just curious to hear your kind of overall takeaways about what we've watched and your experience of watching these movies the vast majority of which you had um, not seen previously so i was just curious to hear what what you've been thinking about um both through the whole season and and since we recorded uh, our last episode um through the whole season i've been i think i've said it i'll echo it again i've said it probably so many times about just how much i enjoyed and appreciated being able to go through this journey like not not having a lot of background in uh Kieslowski, you know not seeing a lot of his films unlike other directors that we've covered uh i felt like it was a little it was a little daunting at first but completely enjoyable i had so much fun especially going through all of his documentaries i know we weren't we talked about you know uh, we'll just touch a few here and there but we ended up liking them so much that we went through all of them i think there's only three movies that I haven't seen by him. One was uh, is the photograph, which I couldn't find mm-hmm. with dubs or subtitles. I mean, and then there was a a travel log movie and a and an industrial film. So out of all of his films, that's pretty good. We watched every one of his shorts, all of his documentaries, um, and it was super enriching. The way that he has changed and developed as a filmmaker over the course of his career is a fascinating journey and one of the things that one of the things that I kind of after taking a long break after Red and kind of really thinking about this going back reading some articles uh, rereading some sections of different books that we had uh, we had chosen kind of as supplements to the uh, films we were watching um, I can't help but think about the fact that Kieslowski always considered himself a technician uh, or, or 
I think he's a technician. I don't know if he considered he considered himself a pessimist and an artist, and he he you know as as he grew in his uh, success and in his work, I think he always kind of had a hard time calling himself an artist, but he was always looking for the the artist inside of you know inside of himself while working on these technical things, and I think. He like like Ozu with his idea that I'm the tofu maker. I just I do the same thing over and over and make make my product. I think Kishlowski has a lot of that coming from his documentary side. He he spent so much of it uh, trying to find truth and to tell truth. You know what you have to be able to give up a lot of control. Um, you know the technical start parts of of making a documentary you can shape the story you can work on the editing you can choose the camera stuff but everything else you have no control over and I think he was a person that needed to have more control as we start listening to more and more interviews with him later on in his career um, a lot of the actors keep on echoing each other with the fact that you know he's always there working with us, telling us exactly how he wants lines, where we need to place our hands. Um, he ended up being someone who is very exerting when he needs to be very precise on what he imagines this scene should be or how this thing should shape. And I think when you're a documentary filmmaker, you have no control over society, politics, uh, religion, people, uh, stories, narratives, you have no control over those things. But those are the things that make up the artistic side of narrative films. Those are the things you concentrate on when you're making a narrative film, and then the technical comes comes along with it to help shape that. And so I think he was a person that looked to seek control throughout his career. Um, you know, coming from Poland and everything always changing there whoever was in power at the time whatever the political game you know political party that was in control everything was constantly shifting there was no chance for anyone to kind of be on any sort of stable ground for many years there and even if you did you didn't you know you knew another party was going to come along so anything you worked on or made might be shelved or or uh, censored for a long time, just gotten rid of. He had a lot of his film. You know, we we talked about he had many of his films that were shelved until a new regime came in, and then they released it to uh, to help bolster their side of the story. And I think that because of the landscape and the society that he was in, the one thing that he just wanted to do was was have sort of some sort of control over what was going on what he can do and his his means and his way to control these things was to move into a narrative function because once you move out a documentary where now your actions have consequences where characters in your documentary might get in trouble for what they say or what they do or you're really upset because at this moment it would be perfect for these two people to kiss and they don't so you don't have this imagined closure that you really want you have to allow things to be what they are and I think once he moves into narrative he's able to exert control over everything and I think that's where he starts to become a really amazing filmmaker because he's able to completely achieve his vision and he surrounds himself with people 
that also help him achieve that vision, which I think is another uh, hallmark of Kieslowski is uh, making sure that he's in a room with a bunch of smart people that are also going to help him achieve these things that are inside of his brain. So as he grew as a filmmaker, as he moved away from documentary and into narrative, as he grew through the narratives to the point where he was unwilling to relinquish control over the Decalogue and made every single episode himself, you can see a filmmaker just uh, blossom and become a master at his craft. And then when he when Poland finally becomes free and they're able to, you know, a democracy and they're able to make whatever they want, he moves to Europe because, I mean, he moves to making uh, more European, Eurocentric films as opposed to strictly Polish films, because at that point, there's no longer a struggle to kind of work against. And so because there is none of that, he needs he can move uh, further out into the world. And it's it's very interesting that when he finally makes that jump, um, he also changes kind of the thrust of how he's making his films. They become a lot more um, visually artistic Um, before they were very kind of. Uh, structured almost documentary in their style and then when he moves to this more European uh, feel he's able to kind of expand his visual language to the point where he's inventing things that other filmmakers in that time period and moving on use as a basis for almost so many of the films that uh, we knew and loved in the 90s and the 2000s uh, he created almost a whole art house Eurocentric feel to films that, you know, that we can point our finger to and say, okay, this movie is in that vein, that movie's in that vein. I think that as a filmmaker, he is very different from a lot of others. He's he worked on twice as many projects than most of the filmmakers we talked about. He has a very strong documentary background, which he was able to grow and shape and change and into his narrative style, which then grew in, like he wasn't afraid to change. Just like the times in Poland were always changing, he was always able to change with them and always be just a few steps ahead of what was going on, which I think was his greatest achievement is moving, is being a little bit future thinking. As much as he is a pessimist, uh, or claims he's a pessimist, uh, there was always a sense that through his pessimism, he's able to see things how they really are and then easily pinpoint how things should change to make things better. And that's what I think about him when I think as a filmmaker. His pessimism allowed him to have a clear, unobstructed view of how things are, which then, because of that clarity, he can see further along into the future at the hopeful thing that can happen, even though it's been you know, prefaced by all this negativity and all this sorrow and all this struggle. Uh, struggle leads to change and... I think that is what most of his films are about. Well, that was a lot. <laughs> I'm sorry, dude. Um, no, I mean, uh, the, there's a lot in there um, that that, uh, that I think is really worth um, touching on. I mean, I think uh, the first thing I'm kind of overwhelmed, um, but I'm gonna try to try to hit all the the the, the, the most important points I want to. I had I had lots there. of time. I had lots of time to think, man. You did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the first thing I just 
think of when you when you talk about control i think it it's interesting just because the the two directors that that we covered before Kishlovsky are directors that i think people would probably use the word control as the first word to describe them as filmmakers um you know in in kubrick you have somebody who was thought of as as obsessive about perfecting his vision and would go to you know any lengths whether it was 250 takes or um, creating new technologies that uh, that hadn't been uh, invented yet just so that he could put his vision on screen with with Elaine May the control usually centered around the lack of control that she had over her completed movies and um, how uh, obsessive she became about trying to get that control back and to to put her true vision on screen and and have a have kind of a final cut uh, that that said exactly what she wanted it to say. Um, in Kishlovsky, I agree that he. I mean, certainly that from the stories of him on set. He was somebody who was very controlling and exacting with his actors in a similar way to Ozu, I think, um, to the point where, he, similar to Ozu, he would, you know, describe the exact uh, way to pick up a coffee cup or to smoke a cigarette. And yet, I think most of the really great performances that we've watched have come from actors and, and in particular Julia Pinochet and Blue who pushed back against that control and he responded to that pushback and allowed them to have the space to do their work if he felt like that work uh, was worth doing and uh, you know in the case of of the the co-writers that he had and the uh, the relationships with other filmmakers that he had over decades. He strikes me as much more of a collaborator than those two filmmakers, um, despite, you know, the fact that, that both of them had had very fruitful relationships with other creative people. He, he surrounded himself with a certain group of, of people who, and, you know, and he would say this in interviews, that if, if somebody, if anybody on the set had an idea that was a good that he felt was a good idea he would take it he didn't matter where it came from and i think you know he he despite his his kind of confidence in his vision and his persistence in trying to execute that vision was was much more willing to deviate from his his personal view if if a better idea came along and then i i mean i think the other thing that came to mind when you were talking about the the documentaries and I think you know for me that was the real revelation of 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 this watch through just how much that informed his work and how fascinating a lot of those projects were and and wide ranging you know something yeah like talking heads versus women uh, seven women of different ages uh, versus uh, the the early workers or or wood uh, documentaries that he made just different in subject matter style 
editing techniques, cinematography. I mean, just on every level, they were completely different works, and uh, and yet all of a piece with with his kind of worldview. And and so fascinating to see that work 10, 15, 20 years before films that to me were seem so intimately linked with them, you know, Seven Women of Different Ages versus Veronique to me are, is, mm-hmm. is a fascinating juxtaposition. Um, and the worker documentaries versus um, Short Working Day, things like that, I think, were, were, were very uh, revealing. And, uh, you know, as somebody who was had seen Blind Chance, but was mostly familiar with his more uh, famous international uh, work, um, was really opened him up as a as an artist to me. And I think it was really interesting to read so much about his move from documentary filmmaking to fictional work, uh, which we've discussed many times uh, on the on the show because it 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 seems so crucial to what he does to get closer to the true essence of an individual and and that sense that you can really only do that through fiction i think is something that informs most cinephiles experience of watching movies the the enjoyment of watching narrative film is is to get close to an individual when you aren't uh, physically able to or or socially able to do that in real life is a, is something that that can only be accomplished in cinema um, and, and I think that's a, a very special thing that 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 links Kieślowski's work so closely with with the reasons that that we watch movies in the first place yeah no I agree I think the last thing I wanted to talk about was just the um, the influence that his later films had on on movies, uh, you know, we're going to talk about Heaven, which is uh, was was based on a, a unfinished script of his um, that Tom Tykver made, and he's he's an obvious uh, touch point for the influence of Kieślowski. But it's funny because you know, and and, and I think another one is Jean Pierre Jeannot, who we mentioned briefly with with films like Amelie, they're, they're such whimsical filmmakers and they also are so closely identified with the quote unquote MTV generation, you know, especially something like Run Lola Run, that it's funny to think about those movies as being linked to Kieślowski because you just don't really associate with him with, with that kind of flashy, like Tony Scott filmmaking, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. But there's a lot of that in those later movies, and they they are flashy to a certain degree. I mean, especially Red. But there's also this like real high concept, um, you know, kind of spiritual without religious uh, underpinning to his work. You know, multiple realities, uh, dual personalities. Uh, different odd connections and coincidences between people all of these things uh fed so deeply into indie and mid-tier filmmaking in mid-tier budget filmmaking in the 90s and 2000s and a lot of it did come from Kieślowski and and you know in particular Decalogue and the Three Colors but also it 
you know, because his earlier work is so uh, infused into that work, it's it's clear that this was not just some weird fluke that he made these movies. They they were they were the endpoint of of everything uh, coming before it. The one the one other thing I wanted to say is just that you know not not having watched the earlier stuff before we decided on Kishlovsky, I kind of expected it to be a little bit more like you know, we'll watch these early movies. Some of them are TV works, I think. Um, you know, we'll watch them. We'll have people on. We'll talk about them. It'll be fun. And then we'll get to, like, the real meat of of the season. Mm. And and I was really surprised, very pleasantly so, uh, by how much I enjoyed those early films. In particular, The Calm, the calm um, Camera the Buff, calm. The Calm blew me away. Like, I, yeah. I, I loved that movie. Like, that is a movie that I will watch again and again. Like, it's that one. Yeah, that one, that one completely. I hope that, I hope I get to find that uh, in a physical media copy that uh, I can, I can keep because uh, that is a film that I really, really, truly enjoyed. Yeah. So, I, you know, I was very struck by just how purely entertaining his work was and how consistently he executed at a very high level especially for somebody who for the most part made the movies that he wanted to make and like you said uh you know had the technical skill to to execute them and had a particular vision and then pretty much hated every single one of his movies after they Mm -hmm. were finished and you know didn't think they worked at all and so you know I, i mean i i think it's part of his kind of shtick to a certain degree yeah um but i think that you know the 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 work was created by that by that person who was never satisfied but who was always trying to make a a better film than the one that was before it and i think and i think a lot of that tenacity to try to like make it better and it was always in post he was making it better like on set, he was also, you know, like you said, he was he was taking ideas and being like able to pivot quickly and be like, you know what, this isn't working. How can we make this work better? And, you know, even if the grip says, well, I saw this cool house down the street. Maybe we should film that scene out there because it it would tie together with this. He'd be like, yeah, let's do it. Like he was he was willing to collaborate which yes marks is markedly different from his other his, the other directors we've covered, but I think it's in post that Kieslowski is as good as he is because of his post work. You know, he always had a he always had an editor. He was never one of those, you know, I'm doing it myself. But being down there and being able to just like with all his documentary experience, knowing that there's footage in there that will help make the story. We can steal this and grab this and let's let's shift this narrative. Like he was never tied to his scripts. He was never tied to the performances. He's willing to cut stuff out and get rid of stuff and jettison it to the side uh, to tell a better story or to change the story completely. He was not scared of doing that. And he would, you know, like we've read and we've we've heard about, he's make 13 versions of a film and then still not be happy and cut one more like two days before the premiere. And, you know, every actor that went in there is like, oh, wow, I didn't expect this. 
there's whole there's whole giant scenes of uh, of getting to know people that are completely gone. And, you know, he was mining for performances and cutting to make it as, you know, show don't tell as possible. And that's, I think that is the biggest, the, the best thing about. There's very rarely any scenes of people telling us what they're feeling or thinking. But there are scenes with people talking about really deep things as only two people in the middle of the afternoon uh, after a couple drinks, we'll have these deep conversations about their philosophies or their histories, and it totally works within the framework of the world that he's created because we're so starved of information at that point and of conversation that when these characters finally do start to talk, we're just, uh, you know, enraptured by these conversations that they're having because we're finally getting into these uh ex you know mining for nuggets of explanation to the mysteries of who these people are as we've only visually been able to kind of piece them together ourselves as uh as the audience so yeah i think his his editing is is something his him him as a director as an editor is probably one of the one of the greatest things and one of the reasons why i had such a problem with heaven is you can tell that that movie was not like cleaned up and reshaped in post. Kishlowski never would have put that movie out that was released. He would have been like, "No, nah, we're gonna work this some more." <laughs> well, you know, we're I mean, gonna I change think, this I'm around. I'm glad you brought up Heaven because I was gonna bring it up too. I mean, I think what um, for 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 people watching at home, uh, this was the first of a planned trilogy that Kishlowski and Pyshevitz, um were writing when Kieślowski died, um, called Heaven, Hell, and Purgatory. And it was made into a movie by Tom Teichver, who made Run, Lola, Run, and a, a number of other uh, films uh, in Germany. It's with Cate uh, Blanchett and Giovanni Ribisi. It's set in Italy. And I think, you know, I mean, I mean the, the what you mentioned about the idea that he would he would put a conversation like that a metaphysical conversation or or a philosophical conversation in in its context in its natural day-to-day context gets at a little bit of why just immediately jumping into heaven i felt like i was in a completely different world than anything that kishlowski would have constructed was just how much like a movie the opening sequence in which Kate Blanchett plants a uh, a, t- a a bomb mm-hmm. to blow up uh, somebody who was responsible for uh, the the death of her husband in his office it, it gets moved by a cleaning lady um, so innocent people die but it's shot like a thriller like a conventional mm-hmm. sort of spy thriller and it wasn't the scene itself as it was written that made it feel not like a Kieślowski movie, but the way that it was shot and constructed and scored it. It's so obviously antithetical to the worlds that Kieślowski created, even in his mo at his most poetic, there's something extremely grounded about the way that he um, presents characters, introduces characters, um, and even shows them at their most dramatic moments that makes it feel so natural and everyday and makes it 
feel completely separate from genre filmmaking or the kind of typical uh, devices that are used in order to generate things like suspense or uh, comedy or any any of the you know genre things that you would think of in conventional uh, narrative filmmaking and the movie just feels like it doesn't understand that at all about mm. uh, his work and and so you know I think that there's there's definitely it, to me it's it is a moving story and there's something there and i think Tykver, you know he's such a like a stylist and so he kind of soars for for poetic grace uh through the film yeah and i think ultimately he doesn't quite get there but i think more importantly there's the there's never a sense that we're watching real people in the movie you know, despite the fact that you know Kate Blanchett, mm-hmm. I I think is is one of one of the best actresses uh, working today. It I always feel like I'm watching Kate Blanchett in the movie because it, there's no there's none of that grounded nature that Kieślowski got every single time. Yeah, no, I I agree. It's almost like you know, it's almost like Tykfer instead of going with his own style that he kind of already has set up in uh uh i think it's a run lola run and then uh, the princess and the warrior mm-hmm. you know he had a style a visual style you know he used the same a cinematographer but it almost is like he was trying to make a kishlowski film instead of just taking the yeah. script and making it his own he was trying to pay homage to the type of film kishlowski would make and the part and it is it 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 doesn't work in that way because it's not seen through the same lens uh kishlowski moves the camera for very specific reasons even even when he's just doing like handheld type stuff you don't feel that camera moving unnecessarily even when he's like you know you're on the train with uh with veronique and the camera all of a sudden lifts and goes high in the train and you see her make direct eye contact with the audience and break the fourth wall and then the camera moves back down again those are very specific moves and he he only does these things for very specific reasons and Tykfer, i felt like watching that movie the camera was moving just to move just to be cool just to have mm-hmm. these like you know and it's a different it's a totally different feeling and you can see that he's attempting to not ape a style but kind of like try to pay homage to uh Kieslowski's style and it just felt hollow like those those things yeah Kate Blanchett's great Giovanni Ribisi I didn't know could speak Italian and I was moved by the fact that he was so good like in in terms of that kind of stuff but you know and to see him playing a normal character we've relegated him to being the weirdo in every single movie Mm -hmm. he's ever been in here and to have him be a character where he's actually kind of a a, a normal person that is working through things and you know falling in love with this person who's at her lowest she could possibly be but i never feel like the story there's nothing i never feel like anything's at stake in this story even when they go up in this you know when the final shot which is a very beautiful shot yeah it's telegraphed so far in advance 
you know, as soon as you hear a helicopter, you're like, oh, yeah, the helicopter at the beginning, and he was told he can't fly that high. And now, you know, obviously this is where we're going with this. Um, but I really think that there were judicious cuts that, that Kieślowski would have made to tell the story a lot stronger. And I think that's where I I missed it, like, in that movie. And who who composed the score for that movie? You know, I it's funny that you it asked anywhere. that. I, I, well, so there's there were pieces at the beginning where I was like, is, is this a Prizner was score? He, was he taking Prizner music from other things and just putting it in there? That's what I was wondering. Yeah, because I mean, I can't, I couldn't find any any credits no com- anywhere. No, no composers listed for this movie. I watched the credits three times. Yeah, I went on multiple searches, and but there's Prizner music in the, in the like song listings kind of thing. Mm. So I'm wondering if he just grabbed Prisoner music and put it in the film yeah. because, like, which is also you know because Prisoner would have written music specifically for the movie, right. and so you know it doesn't it doesn't play as well as it should. It feels no. very kind of like obvious. Like here's the music part. Yeah, I agree. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 it was very interesting watching that. Like I would I would like to see what the I think the other two is uh. There's Hell by uh, Danis Tanovic uh, for 2005. And then Hope um, or uh, Nazjaja by Stanislaw Muka in 2007. So that would have completed the trilogy of those films from uh, Kieslowski and Pesowitz. But I can't find them. I can't find them anywhere in the U.S. And because of our current uh, library systems being closed, uh, I couldn't. Like even try to find them in our library systems to uh, no, I don't. Check th- them yeah, out. I don't think that they've ever been released with English subtitles uh, on the you know the, the yeah uh, the con- commercial market. So no. um, you know there there's probably some way to watch them, but uh, we we didn't have access to them. Um, yeah. I did watch uh, the Big Animal, which was um, mm. the. Uh, uh, Jerzy Struer uh, directed and starred in um, a production of a Kieślowski script that he had written in the 70s and stuck in a drawer and this is definitely a must-see for any Kieślowski fan but especially for any Jerzy Struer fan who which if you're not a Jerzy Struer fan I think you're insane um, <laughs> he uh, is the best. He's the best, and this movie is just—it's a real delight. Um, it's about a guy who basically finds a, a camel uh, in a small Polish town that had been abandoned by a circus, and decides to keep it as a pet. And I think it succeeds in uh, in the sense that it is uh, extremely modest in ambition is not trying to be anything other than what it is and you know has two of the most lovable faces uh in in history in Jerzy Stor and a camel so <laughs> i you know i don't see why anybody uh wouldn't like this movie um and i think it it's definitely um like a, a must must watch it was released by um milestone on dvd quite some time ago so i'm i'm hoping that there's 
more availability of of the film i don't think it's still in print but i could be wrong yeah i had a hard time finding it streaming uh yeah i think uh fandor had it and then now fandor is no more so right. i don't think anyone has picked up the rights to it which hopefully criterion channels had a pretty good relationship with milestone lately so yeah maybe that would be pop great up eventually yeah yeah I had one other thing to talk about. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel about that concept that as he grew from this insulated, just working in Poland, to starting to get a more worldly sense of how the world works around him as he moved out of Poland, that he moved from these masculine films to more uh, feminine films? Uh, Do you think there's any correlation there? It is interesting. I mean, I... It happened to a certain degree before he left Poland, uh, you know, in no end. And I, I, I mean, I think a lot of the Decalogue, if not, I, yeah. is the majority from, I guess we'd have to go through it one by one. But I think a, quite a few of those are, are primarily from a female perspective. Yeah, I um, think four out of the ten stories yeah. are male. Are, are male, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... So, you know, I think it, he was drifting in that direction. I do think it's that's also when Pyshevitz came on as his co-writer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, who knows how much that uh, played into it as well. You know, he has made some, in my opinion, somewhat uh, stereotypical comments about, uh, you know, women being the more interior or um mm-hmm. s- uh, spiritual sex uh and you know uh, the idea that it just uh, logically the characters that he was thinking about the connections that he wanted to make made more sense within a, a female context um i i personally feel like the best case for him moving in that direction is just the fact that for the most part his women were much more interesting than his men um and and so i think he recognized that uh through his career that for the most part the men that he created were blank slates a little bit and they were they had you know wants and needs and some of them were, I think, more compelling than others. Mostly the ones played by Jerzy Stur are the more mm. compelling uh, characters. Um, but I think once he started writing women, they felt more three-dimensional. They felt more like they were allowing insight into their inner life, I think, in a way that his male characters didn't. And I wonder if that's part of that collaboration you talked about earlier was when he started working with these more prominent female actors that they wanted to bring more to their characters than what was on the page, Mm. which, you know, when you're doing more of a kind of a comedy thing, you kind of are just sticking to the material and improvising a little bit, but you're working, you know, not 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 besmirching Jersey Stir because his work, you know, what he's what he brought is so delightful and enjoyable, but the level of emotion that 
that he was able to that him and his actresses were able to pull together far exceeds kind of what he had been working with in the past uh you know starting with no end like that that film like the strongest part about that triptych of stories in there is the is the is the uh, main woman's uh story and i you know that is always that sticks with me i can't tell you about anything else that happens in that film I can remember exactly what happens in her story yeah. and her, you know, you know, that is the strength of that movie. And I think from there on out, it, it just grows and gets, and gets better. And yeah, I think there are some problematic things with, uh, stereotyping women of, of some nature, especially when it comes to some of the, uh, sexual things, which I think, um, there was still, uh, uh, masculine bent uh, to kind of like how uh, some of the women's sexualities were kind of defined but I think the actresses that he that he worked with during that time uh, really helped shape those characters a lot more deeper and stronger with him and I think he recognized that and appreciated it which I think moved forward with other stories quite quite nicely yeah I mean the the biggest jump in in his his I mean I think there's two really giant jumps in his filmmaking in Blind Chance and mm. Double Life but I also think No End is the kind of swing point of his career it says so much about the political and sort of social commentary content that he had worked in for that you know up to that point in his career but it has so much of the themes and sort of concerns that he worked with for the rest of his career. You know, it feels like that moment where yeah. he's saying goodbye to the first half of his career and starting off with everything that, that came after it. I think from there on out, he, he moves it more into this like a, an idea of moral dilemma, whether it's should I kill myself to be with my husband or should I continue his work to help this person, you know, all the way out to kind of like, how do I continue moving forward without my family, my husband and my child and, and still pursue this art that I, you know, he, he turned, he, you know, all of the deck logs are all these moral quandaries that these characters are in. And I think from no end up, like all of his characters develop these moral quandaries where everything before that, it was either uh, shaped by political forces that are beyond their control and how they pivot and work within the system or characters exploring their artistic uh, and creative sides. And it isn't until this point where I think like these moral judgment values are really kind of become front and center from no, no end up. I do agree. I think that is his... You know that is his pivot that is his pivot film um you know that is the moment where it doesn't work it's not 100 percent successful right. but without that film you know you don't get to see the the future paths that he's gonna about to take and step forward into um i definitely think yeah i think uh blind chance is like kind of like the end of it's it, it's like the it's like the seed that grows into his later films but it's the uh, but it's no end that kind of really is the first sprouts that you're kind of like okay this is this is definitely developing into something more um, than just kind of the gimmicks that are very surface level that you kind of see in you know which is the unfortunate you know we talked about that many a times you know him tied to these gimmicks of 
uh, here's three stories you know told uh, just because of a guy missing a train and here's here's a story of the you know the Ten Commandments uh, you know all taking place in one building and here these gimmicks that kind of at uh, you know at first blush if you're to kind of just say that to uh, you know and as an elevator pitch you know a lot of times you get a little eye roll and kind of like really this is what you're gonna <laughs> go for or if I was you know if a student was pitching me that in one of the classes I'd be like come on let's you know let's do something else but uh you know, taking these gimmicks as a, as a means to really develop um, these uh, moral quandaries and these strong characters and how they deal with these problems uh, uh, really works for him. Um, you know, whereas in other hands, it becomes very genre based because they're so tied to those you know to those ideas like if you think about kind of his other legacy like if we if we if we mentioned his first legacy being kind of like this 90s 2000s art house european style of filmmaking um you know the jean-pierre Jeunet's and the tom tykvers and stuff like that the other the other aspect is taking those gimmicks and turning them into films like turned into a whole style of rom-com um, you know, where you got your sliding doors, you've got your serendipity, you got your happenstance. Right. Like there's there's a whole there's yeah. a whole like market Even of films stuff, based yeah, on like Stop Wonderland. Yeah. Exactly. Based off of kind of like the bigger concerns that he was making in, in his films. And then you've got like genre pictures, kinda like uh the butterfly effect. That's blind chance, but made with uh, Ashton Kutcher, and uh, you know people are fans of that movie, I guess. But uh, I found <laughs> it to be kind of like whatever. But yeah, I guess or Straight Jacket. That's another one that's the kind of a the same kind of idea where it's uh, it's just all these different versions. Donnie Darko, Lost Highway. I mean, Lost Highway is gorgeous and has its own thing, but it's that same kind of idea of what happens if we if this person is this person or these two souls are connected and mm. you know how they go through these things and so i think he really opened the door for a lot of that type of filmmaking yeah. you know one could argue that bergman also did that with persona but i think at the time you know early 80s 90s that would be the film school age for all the directors that came out later in the 2000s with these types of movies mm. Yeah. Um, let's uh, let's do our final ranking. What do you think? All right. Yeah. Um, so let me, let me open up. Let me open up the notebook. <laughs> um, so yeah, we did. We we didn't place red on the last episode. We'll find out where we each slot that into uh, this ranking as we go. How do you want to do this? Do you want to? Do you want to? Uh, Oh, I think we're I think we're pretty similar at the bottom. Do we, we both have Scar at the bottom, right? Yeah, Scar's at the bottom. Um, I thought I kind of did a uh, I, I I did my ranking and then I kind of wrote a little uh, blurb about each, kind of like why it is where it is. I'm sure you have your thoughts on why you put them where they are too. But uh, yeah, I put the Scar there because it, you know as we talked about, it felt over overly political, like trying to be a political film. And he was still struggling to find his voice out of the documentary world. And so there were documentary quality to the film. And it was such a political film by nature that there was the humanity part that he 
in the spiritual part that he grew to be really successful and was is almost completely absent in that one so it really kind of ranked at the very bottom for me what would you say about that yeah i mean i think there's really good stuff about it i don't think he made a bad feature um no i I mean like i yeah yeah. but but i mean I, i agree with everything that you said i think he uh he felt it, it feels a little lost like it doesn't uh it doesn't seem like he really knows what he wants to do with uh with the story that he's kind of built around him that he now has to get out of somehow and so he gets kind of trapped in it yeah like uh yeah i should preface when i say these things they're still like these films are still fantastic and should be watched. Like when I'm being my, I'm being the harshest critic just to be able to put them in no, this no, order. Totally but by no means, yeah. by no means, yeah. if this being number fourteen doesn't mean that it's still like a valuable yeah. movie, especially in in judgment of his complete uh, career. Um, so my number thirteen would be a short working day. That's my next one on the list. Yeah, that's mine as well. Um, I, I I think yeah. again, it, very political there's some really fascinating stuff in this and i think this is definitely uh even more so than the scar do not uh dismiss this one especially when i tell you it's his horror yes film. and i think you totally <laughs> uh i i think that was a an astute observation but but i and and also just like as a purely anthropological investigation it's really interesting to see early 80s Poland uh, constructed like this, um, just like a, a, you know, communist government office, what mm. what the layout was, what the what the furniture looked like. I think it's just... Oh, those offices Yeah, were and I think that really gets you through uh, a movie like this, which doesn't have much of kind of a, a, a reason for existing, I think. Yeah, and, and just the, the sheer courage to make a movie taking the side of management during all yeah. the tumult of the workers' strikes is is, is really bold. Um, you know, that idea that, come on, you know, even this guy is, doesn't want to be where he is. Let's look at him. He can't be the one hated. He's answering to all these other idiots. You know, it's. I thought that was, yeah, that's a brave thing. My number 12 is personnel. That's mine as well. Look at us. <laughs> Synchronous. <laughs> I think it'll probably from here on out it'll change, but uh, uh, yeah, no, I think this was his first like personal film. Like this is like this was his first one out of the gate, nineteen seventy five, uh, his first narrative feature, and I think it tells it tells like a lot of his his ideas between his push and pull between the artistic, the technical, the worker, and the political which is really crazily it's it's really well done it feels more of a documentary than it does a narrative but there are narrative and cinematic moments in this film that are quite fascinating and i think that this is his most personal until we get to camera buff which i think we talked this is kind of like a loose trilogy of films that are the kieslowski uh, personal stories we have personnel and camera buff and uh I can't remember what the third one we talked about is, but uh, I would say you put those two together as a double feature, you're going to really work through like what he did to become a uh, an artist, like to grapple with yeah. the fact that he is an artist. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, 
I think this is such a promising feature, primarily because of the way in which he kind of navigates this workplace and the sort of small insecurities of the people and the the petty uh, squabbles um <laughs> and uh and and i think ultimately like presents a, a an interesting kind of moral dilemma within this society that he'd been documenting for half a decade i think it's a it's a a, a really interesting film that you know i think deserves a, a bigger audience and 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 says a lot about the rest of of his work what do you have for number 11 so i have for number 11 um a short film about love which i think is probably uh lower than you have it i know it's lower than than a lot of people would put it yeah i had uh i have the calm and then my next one is a short film okay about well love. calm is number 10 for me so uh well, look at that. yeah um i mean i you know i think it's partially the ickiness of a short film about love and mm. and i also you know i think the ending is is good but i think beyond that i'm not really sure i needed more of episode six of uh decalogue i i, I don't necessarily know that i needed this to be uh, a feature nor do i think kishlovsky needed it to be a feature you know it was picked for him and uh and i don't i don't think it's it's nearly as effective of an expansion of the world as uh, a short film about killing i i agree i think uh it was picked for him for its uh, salacious nature like yeah. they probably thought it was going to be a nudie film um i think i think his efforts would have like his gut effort which we wanted them to pick uh episode uh nine which would have been about jealousy i think that would have been a stronger uh yeah a stronger yeah we talked about that in the episode but uh i liked it for its its visual techniques like the way that it is so like it is very icky but the way that he goes about using that ickiness as a springboard for his uh point of view for his voyeuristic stuff the way that the camera moves and the way that we're looking through the uh, main character's eyes and then the big switch to move to the person who's being watched um, as her point of view as as the narrative changes in the in the midway I did appreciate that but you're absolutely right I think as an episode of the Decalogue it works just as strong and with that additional ending added to love it wasn't as needed or as good i know people really like this one but i think technically it was stronger than the calm the calm had some amazing transcendent moments i think that's the reason why my calm comes a little lower than a short film about love but i mean they're very interchangeable as as we have just interchanged them you can easily have one or the other but yeah, I, I do agree. like a like the calm for those for those reasons uh that's the first movie where he really kind of puts character uh, front and center and what their desires are and then navigating the world that they're in and Jersey Stir gives an amazing performance as the lead and there's lots of imagery like the horses always stay with me the yeah. re reoccurrence of horses to that film me too I, I find the ending to be very memorable I think the film in general just it has a very specific tone that is very easy to recall it you know it's it's a very confident film i think 
in, in its sort of modest yeah. ambition and uh, and you know it has components of the movies uh, around it especially personnel and and the scar um, but I think it does all of those things in a more economical and compelling fashion by centering it around this this really likable character so my number nine is no end it is mine as well <laughs> this is fun look at us <laughs> months apart brains still connected it's it's insane um yeah i think uh, we talked about this earlier in the podcast just kind of like how some of the some of the sections work better than others the main storyline of the uh of the wife and her kind of dealings with the grief of her death of her husband and this desire to carry on his work to make sure that some sort of justice is done and someone is taken care of is uh is really strong and it is really the pivot point for moving into a much more not mature but a deeper deeper work i think he he decides to fully invest in uh telling more of a uh, metaphysical or spiritual films after from here on out yeah i'm not crazy about the ending of the film but um in general i think it's a very successful work my next movie uh is white which dropped uh a notch or two um since that episode but that that's my number eight what do you have at eight i have blind chance white moved up in my estimation because i kept on thinking about that film that was i thought more about that film after we had our conversation with erica and i don't know if it's just that in my brain i've enjoyed that conversation so much so the movie has moved up in its estimation but uh i have blind chances number eight i think because the whole multiple narrative thing is an interesting concept and i did enjoy it watching how this character's life unfolds in three different opportunities uh missed opportunities versus completing his goal and then uh you know a third version of his life the cosmic joke of it all at the end really kind of rubbed me Mm -hmm. the wrong way like i think we we don't like that's that pessimist like trying to have that pessimistic voice at the very end uh letting you know that none of it matters anyway is you know you can have the best life you're still gonna die i don't especially in this time this day and age i don't need to hear that uh but i did enjoy that i think there's the political uh aspects of it get too bogged down for me i find it interesting like watching watching this character i think i would like the character to have a stronger voice in the movie is what i really i want you know instead of him just being passive and listening to other people talk and him act reacting i wanted to see him be active a little bit more Uh, i think that's my main gripe with that film yeah i understand that Uh, um i think for me I have this at, at number six, so I have camera buff uh, at number seven. I think okay. for for me, Blind Chance is kind of his first really great movie, and you know I think the opening sequence is extraordinary, and it's a it's a movie that I can easily see revisiting, and I I got a lot out of it this time by being able to read Polish history books before the season, mm-hmm. you know, watch these other movies and, and read about uh, the political happenings at the time. 
and delve into the politics of it knowing those things and being more informed on that helped an, an enormous amount in appreciating what was on screen so you know i think that kind of got me over that hump of of feeling like you know i, I didn't have a grasp on a piece of this movie yeah so so yeah so eight was blind chance seven i had white which uh, the more i thought about the idea of equality as the theme of that movie and tearing other people down to make them as equally miserable as you um became a theme that kind of like as bad as that is it was kind of a it was an interesting concept to me that it made a good kind of uh, balance between the other two films when you look at it as a trilogy. I think that was a, there's lots of imagery in that movie that I'm still like, I still think about that maybe because of its more recent nature, I need to, I need to revisit it again, but that's the reason why I was a little, it was one above blind chance. And I have camera buff in my number six moving ahead of white. Yeah. I mean, I think white, um, didn't stay with me. Um, I think it's less though that I uh, think less of white uh, since our episode and more that uh, I just uh, really take coming away from the season look at look at blind chance and camera buff as special movies yeah. that I think deserve wider audiences. Um, and I, I think white, because it's not as successful as the films that surround it just i think that you know hurts it in my in my estimation mm-hmm. um it's still a very enjoyable movie and I, I i'm sure i'll watch it again soon but yeah it, it just it, it doesn't measure up on a personal level to those other two movies because i think there's less to for me to kind of relate and engage with in the movie totally understandable what's your number six was that camera buff as well number seven is camera buff so six is blind chance. Okay. seven is camera buff six i mean i think camera buff is you know again i think yerzy stir is is so wonderful and this is just a movie that if you like movies you're you're gonna get a kick out of if you make movies you're gonna get an even bigger kick out of it <laughs> and and i think it's probably of his early films it's probably the one that best balances the political with the personal and and so i think that's kind of the reason i have it as as his highest work before blind chance because i think it's it, it really is effective in in what he kind of set out to do with almost every one of his early movies yeah i think i have i have camera buff a little higher because of that performance and because of the you know even throughout the the difficulties of the uh government that he was dealing with in the movie and as his relationships are dissolving all around him there's still a joy in watching him and seeing him create and the joy that he gets from creating that really kind of resonated with me more um, and made me really kind of latch on to this film as like one of my, you know, one of my favorite, my favorite of his early films for sure. It's also probably his funniest movie of, you know, oh, if you, unless delightful. you count uh, Decalogue 10, I think it's, it's, um, it's a real, 
pleasure to, to watch. It's very funny. Completely. So number five, what do you have for number five? I have Veronique at, at five. Oh, okay. I have a short film about killing, so... I think your your short film about killing is number four, maybe. No, I have read at number Red. four. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and short film about killing at three. Um, I'm very stingy right. with my five stars on Letterboxd, just because uh, it makes it easier for me to look for my f- top favorite movies. <laughs> it's just a yeah. purely filtering thing for me. And uh, so my top three are five stars. That's that's Decalogue Blue and short film about killing. Red uh, is a four four point five for me. I I think it comes very close. It's got some aspects of it that I'm not as crazy about, mainly around kind of the fact that Irene Jacobs' character is not as compelling as Juliette Binoche's character in Blue. I think the flashiness of the film is extremely impressive to me but i respond to it less on kind of just a visceral level Mm -hmm. despite the fact that you know 20 years ago when i watched red for the first time it was my easily my favorite of the three and and i would have said one of my favorite movies ever um i think i've just evolved as a as a a movie watcher since then i'm going out of order though so but that but that's that's kind of why i have read it for Oh no, that's and that's. I mean, from here on out, the top five, like, yeah, they're they're still they're they're four point five five stars, like all the way through. Like, you can't go wrong with these these last five films for sure. I have a short film about killing in my five spot because it does what it should do. It expands yeah. upon that idea of what the subject matter is and makes it even more brutal and hard to take, but tells it in such a just a visceral way i mean the idea that the death penalty was basically abolished because of this film in poland like it was it was a big benchmark uh for a lot of polish citizens like this is like the reason why they've abolished the death penalty because of this movie is is huge like that is i think that is basically the goal of almost any filmmaker is to create change you know whether it's from just one one person telling you that you know they have a better understanding of the world because of your film versus you know a whole society changing because of one film you made uh that's a real testament to him but i think because of the this sounds it sounds reductive but it's such a simple story whereas the next four films of his are a lot more complicated in terms of what they're trying to achieve uh, I, I know that sounds reductive. No, I think it, you're totally it, like, right. I mean, the, the killing is significantly less ambitious in its scope, both yeah. in terms of what's on screen, but also in kind of the philosophical points that it wants to touch on. It's 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 intently focused on the thing that it's about and i mean it's it's about it in a larger way in the sense that it's kind of the the evil that in, infects the the city as a whole um, because of this uh, component but it's definitely the 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 least ambitious and i actually for that reason to me it, it's it's more compelling than some of these other movies and and honestly i th- i think maybe pound for pound it, it, it might be his best film just because i think mm. just watching 
the movie for what it is. I, I don't know that you could have made a better movie. <laughs> I, I'm not sure anybody, no, I... any filmmaker could have accomplished anything more impressive than what he does uh, with that with that film. Yeah, it has the power of like a punk song. Like it's just, it's simple in terms of its chord progression and what it's trying to do is very vocal and very raw. And, but it's, you know, it's it's effective in yeah. what it's trying to do for sure. Yeah, no, I, 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 in no way do I do I not like this movie. I, no, no, <laughs> no, no, it's totally. fantastic. But uh, it, this is where it just becomes down to kind of like personal taste in terms yeah. of the end, you know, because all these movies are. My number four was Double Life, which you had as your number five, right? Yes. Yeah, you know, I think this is the movie most people have seen in his career. And it is really him making a an effort to expand way past his uh, into a more visual style that uh, that works through more metaphysical uh, ideas than what he's previously tried to do, and I think it's very successful. There are things in it that don't work as well um, in a modern lens, um, and we did we address those in our episode. But I think in terms of what he set out to do, I think he accomplished it very well, and it's very grand. And Irene Jacob is just spectacular in terms of uh, what she's bringing to the screen and what is uh, what is happening in the film. So. I really, uh, that one really spoke to me. I think it's just a, a remarkable piece of editing. You know, I, mm. I, I don't think, uh, I think, I think you, you know, you mentioned Mulholland Drive earlier in our discussion. And I think they're very similar in the sense that it's incredibly hard to make a work of art that is that different in terms of its narrative structure that is so accessible and so endlessly watchable and easy, you know, just easy to take in despite Mm -hmm. the, the kind of difficulty of both what it's trying to talk about and the way that it tells its story. Um, I think that that part of it, is is its greatest accomplishment as a film there are other things that i think hinder it and make it you know put it in my five slot that i talked about a little bit on the episode but i think ultimately that that's really what i take away from that movie is just like the the structure the construction of it is is incredible yeah no i i agree i think i think the other you know there's so many opportunities for pretension in that film and it skirts them which i think is what makes it so accessible so many people that are watching art house films like you know wilt at the idea of like oh this is so pretentious because it's trying it it never feels that way it feels earnest in most of its attempts at what it's trying to do but technically i think it is it is a uh tour de force of his ability to edit and tell a story and still stay away from the from telling and being more showing Mm -hmm. and everything i think that was the other thing i missed in heaven was the artful close-ups and detail work that doesn't that didn't exist in Mm -hmm. that film everything was typical like like you said it was shot like a normal like thriller type movie all right so then that brings me to my number three which was red which uh you had slotted a little lower but 
yeah, red for me. Uh, I did like in the long term the idea. I think I'm 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 uh, responding more to kind of like the themes and what he's talking about. And in red, I like the idea that we are all in this together, but only through this concept of loss. If you were to look at the three colors films, they're more about loss than anything else. There's the physical loss in blue of of family, and only through this loss can she take over and be the artist that she's been hiding. And then with white, it's only through his loss of his uh, potency and his wife that he's able to kind of go back to his home country and regain and become a new person. And then in red, it's only through this loss that we kind of realize that we're all connected, whether intentional or not, all of us are together. And it's only through this loss of all these lives on this boat that we can kind of realize this, which is, is kind of strange. So I think it's riding off the high of the idea of the trilogy as a whole that this movie has moved up. Technically it has some fantastic stuff going on in it, but there are some, you know, there are some flaws in it that I think don't make the movie perfect, but it's still uh, pretty damn good in yeah. my estimation. Uh, right. So here it comes the moment of truth. What are you putting Decalogue or blue as your number one? I have Decalogue as my number one. It, it it stuck the landing. It stayed in the slot. I think Decalogue is uh, one of the towering works of of cinema. It's one of the best movies of the '80s, if not the best. And I think it's his greatest accomplishment as a director, and probably greater than the greatest accomplishment of ninety nine percent of directors uh, <laughs> who ever try to make a movie. Yeah, he could have just made that film, and that would he could have made that ten part series and disappeared into obscurity, and he'd still be in yeah. the top ten directors of all time. No, that's uh, Decalogue is my number two, only because the emotional resonance of Three Colors Blue uh, is so strong with me that uh, it's hard to shake it. But uh, you know, those two are both five. Yeah, they're films. both perfect. Like, it does. They're both <laughs> amazing all the way through. I appreciated the fact that we went through the Decalogue a piece at a time and taking yeah. our time with it, with, with guests. Because of that, it, it became something a little more special. And then being able to talk about it in detail and, uh, you know, as a theme, as a whole, was uh, was was fantastic. Um, I can easily see myself watching that once a year, almost kind of like uh, Bergman's Fanny and Alexander as kind of a, uh, a thing that... Uh, that kind of centers me again because there's so many amazing stories in that film. I agree. I think we could do another mini series of <laughs> talking about oh, completely. doing the exact same thing with different guests, and it, um, we would find completely new things to to talk about on each episode. There's just so much, both in in the individual episodes and in the way that they're in, interconnected, both literally and and in in terms of what they're talking about. No, I agree 100%. I think we definitely could we could do that. Um, and then, yeah, Blue's my number one. It's just the the emotional rawness of Benoche's performance and the storytelling techniques that he's employing in this film are just uh, second to none for me. I think because I'm thinking in terms of films, you know, I know uh, there's an argument to be made about Decalogue being a, uh, a singular work right. of film, uh, you know, 
so I think that's the only reason why Blue edges it out uh, just a bit because it is a it is a perfect movie um, all the way through. Like, well, I certainly there's in a wasted bit. I, I I don't think in in the last year that a movie has had um, a more profound impact on me than Blue. This this the second time I watched Blue before our podcast, I think. I sat in the dark for about 20 minutes just thinking about the film and it's it's an incredibly powerful work work of cinema so being in my number two slot uh, after Decalogue is is not an insult to this film it's a a beautiful beautiful work and Julia Binoche is astonishingly good in it yeah Decalogue and Blue uh, you know waited to you know paced together yeah. through the end of the lap and then held hands and then walked through the finish line together at the oh, same time. That's what we're going to do at the end of this episode. Travis. That's that's what we're doing right now. Take my hand. Let's finish this episode. Let, let us finish this episode. Um, I, I, there's, there's a couple more things that we want to cover. I think rather than just like list off of all the books that, that, that we, we read uh, throughout this, I, I was curious to know like, I mean, I think everybody, you know, would would pick Kieślowski on Kieślowski as kind of the the book to have uh, for uh, this director. Is there is there anything else that you you know really think people should should pick up if they're curious to read more about uh, things that we've referenced on the show or or just generally you know to have on the shelf uh, for for Kieślowski? I think if you're if you want a deeper understanding of Polish cinema and to help put his films and what he was doing in a greater context. I really enjoyed the Polish national cinema book by uh, Marek Haltoff, H-A-L-T-O-F. It, it really, it takes you through Polish cinema as a whole and uh, really builds a good foundation of kind of like what the style was, what the types of cinema was. There's very, very specific in terms of its region and regionality uh, themes and ideas and and styles that kind of help helped me as a person who is very anglocentric in his filmmaking in film watching uh, helped me kind of understand the shorthands and the themes that were running through Kieslowski's films. Um, I really appreciated that book. But you know we can't we can't not not talk about Annette Isendorf's double live second chances it's a it's the handbook in terms of kind of like breaking down his films and uh, talking about them critiquing them in a uh, intelligent way yeah in Star's book is is uh very good she definitely has some moments where i i get the sense that she didn't have blu-rays on hands, second viewing yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. To, to reference yeah. but i think uh she she has some uh, really wonderful Insights. Uh, I I would recommend the book as a as a library pull uh, for people that don't want a mm-hmm. whole Kieślowski section of their um, their collection. Yeah. Um. I, the the book that I would recommend actually is also by Marek Haltoff, um, which is uh, the cinema of Krzysztof Kieślowski variations on Destiny and Chance. That was for me nice. my favorite of the books that I read along with during this. I had five or six that I was reading as as we went. And it had really interesting insight into the films, but I think even more importantly, along the lines of what you're talking about on a larger scale, 
um, some really good context for why he was making the movies that he was making, what other similar movies were being made in Poland at the time, and kind of how his movies fit into those trends, and uh, and some really good quotes from Kieślowski as well. So I, I actually would say, you know, especially because there's so much uh, footage of Kieślowski being interviewed on the discs, that this book is... Um, potentially even more valuable than, than Kieślowski on Kieślowski. So I, I would recommend that book uh, to anybody who's who's looking to expand their uh, Kieślowski collection. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in both of those books, the Is- Insdorf book and uh, the book you just mentioned are quoting from the... Uh or quoting his uh, Kieślowski's quotes from the Kieślowski on Kieślowski book. So it's almost yeah, kind of like half of, of the time you're re- you're rereading the same quotes yeah, over and sure. over again. I also liked uh, the BFI Modern Classic Three Colors book where it just focused on the three colors yeah. by Jeff Andrews. Um, it was nice to have a, uh, a critical analysis of, of those movies to kind of either, uh, you know, confirm some of my own thoughts or to kind of ra- rail against which is nice. Uh, I think there's a wealth of information online and stuff like that, but most of the work being written by him from the time is just summations of what you're about to watch, which is, you know, unfortunate. It falls into that that realm of trying to get American audiences to watch the movie as opposed to kind of uh, critiquing the films for uh, what they are. Yeah. So uh, the, the, the big thing that we still have uh, to do is thank all of our uh, amazing guests that we got to have on this season. Some of our close friends that we have uh, known for years online uh, and through podcasts. People like John Lobinger, Mark Herney, Will Remmers, Matt Schlee, Martin Kessler, Josh Hornbeck, Keith Enright, Cole Rolaine, David Blakesley, uh, Tim Lego, Dice K. Beppu, uh, Dave Eves, and Becky Diana, and then some people who uh, we are were new to the podcast and new to to our uh, sort of small orbits of film nerddom mm-hmm. online. Uh, people like Caitlin from Her Head and Films, a great podcast, and uh, and Michal Oleszczyk, which uh, you know it was so nice of him to reach out and offer to be on the show and that was just a wonderful conversation um that we had so uh, thank you to all all of these people the the last person who uh, we have to thank uh who i saved for last because she's so nice we had her on thrice uh is erica long uh, for (laughs) for the three colors trilogy it was very generous of her to lend her our time considering that she already has uh, an insane output uh, on her own show, uh, the Magic Lantern podcast with Cole. So that I had to reserve a special thanks for her, but really thank you to, to everybody who, who came on the show and, and lent us their uh, time and insight. It was uh, really, really fun and made the, the whole season worth doing. Yes, it's always better, better in a three-way. Uh, than uh, just me and you sitting here talking to each other all the time. Not that it's, it's not it's enjoyable nice. completely. It's all right. It is nice. No, I do appreciate everyone that took their time and uh, hopefully uh, in, they enjoyed themselves as well because uh, it's uh, the number one reason that I enjoy doing this podcast with you is 
we love talking about movies and uh, to be able to do that with people that also like talking about movies is uh, is a pure joy and uh, yes Erica Long gets the big uh, special thanks for sure um, you know out there somewhere there's a sex aquarium with her name <laughs> on it that uh, she has uh, she has uh, earned by uh, spending uh, three episodes with us and uh, working through some of the most emotional films of uh, Kieślowski's career so thank you big time so do you have any any parting words here as we uh, near the end of season three I guess the biggest the biggest thing I take away from watching these films is is the struggle to connect with other humans and in this time in this place in this world it's more important than ever and to watch uh, this director fall in love with humanity while remaining a pessimist and looking forward to kind of getting to know these people even at their worst and still shine a light on them makes a sort of cynical hopefulness that I can't help but uh, be in love with. And so I really did appreciate the humanist nature that he took with all of his subjects and helped me keep my eyes as open as I can and to always give the other person a fairer shake, being a little bit more in their shoes and thinking about their side of things because they have a story as well and you don't know what got them to where they are and I really appreciated the way that he always was willing to help tell that part of the story how about you buddy well I think that's well put I'm not sure I can go one better than that but I will say that um, I'm I as a pessimist I am eternally grateful to people like Kieślowski who put art like this out into the world to let everybody know that deep down we're all big softies and that's why we're so bummed out most of the time because we just want people to be a little kinder and uh, a, a little bit more open to um, to having positive experiences with other people and making other people's lives a little bit better and he wasn't able to produce as much work as I think he was capable of but what he's left us is is a body of work that will definitely rival any of the uh, the work that we will cover on future seasons. So this is uh, you know another another summit that we've climbed, and um, the view the view from the top was was quite beautiful. I you know what? Let's take my why don't you take my hand and let's uh, cross that finish line together <laughs> right now. All right. Do we do you want to talk to them about uh should we talk about who we're gonna cover next or should we leave it a mystery? Let's let's leave it a mystery. Check I check like the that. Twitter account, people. There you hey, go. Hey, and you know what? If you want to come on this show, reach out to us. Say yeah, what's up. Please do. We always like hearing from uh people and uh we see that we have listeners that uh are more than happy to reach out to us and thank us and tell us uh, how much they enjoy the show and we appreciate that. That's one of the things that we we don't do very often in this show is turn around and talk to you, the listener, and thank you for checking out the show, listening to episodes. Uh, that's one of the things I always uh, hit the uh, 
plus 10 plus 15 on my podcast when they when the hosts go into that because i want to get to what's going on and so uh there we're gonna save it to the very end you have to you can plus 15 us all you want because it's over but uh thank you very much everyone for uh, always listening checking out what's going on we we appreciate it as you know we do this for ourselves and uh if everyone else enjoys it and the money yes we're rolling in it it's insane uh but uh we do appreciate that people also appreciate this show and please reach out say hey let us know i'm not going to be one of those people that ask you for review or rating don't do that you can do whatever you want to do however you want to interact with us that's all we can review about. us on yelp that's the only thing i ask <laughs> uh, and you know what matt with that we're finally complete Thank you.